I've served in churches where um, it can be very difficult to get elders um, to pray, in particular in uh, a worship service. I mean, like pulling teeth to get them to do it. In this church, y'all, not only are they willing to do it, sometimes two will rise to do it within a worship service. What a blessing. That's awesome. All right, um, that joking aside, uh, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we're coming to uh, a chapter, chapter 5, and um, a well-known passage that I think is easy uh, to pass through and not meditate on very deeply. Just see the miracle and, and go our way. But I don't think we should do that. This is about the miraculous catch of fish, and believe it or not, there is a lot going on in this passage. So we're in Luke chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up with verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together to meditate on your word. We know that this, this word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that this word can penetrate deep into our hearts and our minds to change our ways, to move us towards you, to cause us to even love our enemies. So, Lord, we pray that you would be in, with, and amongst us right in this moment through your Spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear this word, and that we might have feet to do it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke begins this section with, on one occasion, as in this one time. And there were many things that Jesus said and did that as... Uh, John remarks in his gospel, all the books in the world could not contain them. Now, I, I think John is, is saying a hyperbole there, but what John has in mind is that there are many more things that Jesus said and did, did that were not uh, included in the Bible. Even so, what is included is there so that we may know that Jesus is Lord and have life in him. And the same, of course, holds true here. On this particular occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing near the lake of Gennesaret, that is, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus saw two boats sitting idly by the lake as the fishermen washed their nets. Now, if you will remember from, from previous weeks, 
Luke has established that Jesus lives by the very word of God and in turn preaches the word of God because he is the word of God. And to this point in Luke's account, people have, they've recognized that Jesus is astonishing and speaks with an authority that they had previously never encountered, but only to this point, it's been angels and, and demons that have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. But here, Luke tells us that the crowds have some recognition that, that Jesus uh, was preaching uh, the Word of God. That's, that's what they've come to hear, even as they, they do not recognize him as the Word of God. They do not have a confession as, say, the angels or the demons do. And like with previous weeks, Jesus is still in the region of Galilee. And as Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4 both indicate, Galilee was associated with the Gentiles. Further, Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret, which is also a clear allusion to the Gentiles as well, which is important for understanding the theological meaning of this event. And we will come to that uh, in due time. Now, the typical practice for fishermen was to wash their, their nets after a catch. But as we know from verse 5, these fishermen had worked all night and caught nothing. So they are readying their nets for a catch even as they have, they have failed just the night before to catch anything. In the meantime, because the crowds were pressing in on him, Jesus gets in Peter's boat and asks him to put out a little from the land. He then sat down, and remember that that's the posture of a teacher. So he's taking a, a teaching authority there by, by sitting. And then he taught the crowd just off the shore from the boat. So on the one hand, Jesus is simply getting a little bit of, of distance from the crowd in order to be seen and heard better. But on the other hand, everything he's doing here is purposely symbolic. Now, it's not unusual for prophets to symbolically act out God's word to his people or even to enact parables. So for example, Hosea was commanded to marry, uh, as Hosea 1-2 says, a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's God's words, not mine. That's his word to Hosea. And so Hosea marries Gomer and, and keeping with God's word, and they have a son, and in turn, God commands Hosea to name him Jezreel, because soon God would punish Yehu for the blood spilt at Jezreel. So Hosea's firstborn son was a, a walking, talking reminder, really a signpost, that God was bringing judgment on Yehu. Soon after, Hosea has a daughter by Gomer and is commanded to name her No Mercy. No mercy, because God would have no mercy on the northern kingdom of Israel, but he would have mercy on the southern kingdom of Judah. They have yet another uh, son. And so we're, we're at least, let's say, at the very bare minimum, three years in here. And God commands Hosea to name him, not my people. Not my people, for as God says, you are not my people, and I am not your God, which meant for the northern kingdom of Israel uh, that they were being judged. For, for breaking the covenant with God. So all of this actually happened, and none of this was, was figurative, right? 
Hosea really married Gomer and named their children according to God's word that in turn served as symbols or signs that God was going to bring the hammer down on Israel. So let's just think of this practically. Can you imagine how dinner might go? No mercy. Please pass the salt to not my people. Right? Just imagine them trying to fill out their ACT, right? Or whatever, like being in school. Now, there are lots of examples of this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah all had what you would call enacted or, or symbolic aspects to their work, pointing to really deep theological meaning, and some of which, if you just read through them, are pretty extreme. And as we will see in our time on Sunday night, in our Sunday night series, uh, not now, but in the weeks to come, Daniel in the lion's den is not merely a story of faithful patience on the part of Daniel. That event was symbolic of how Babylon, who was described as a lion, would not be able to hurt Israel's witness to the nations. The lion's den was not just some random thing like, oh, there's a lion's den, here we go. No, it's there purposely. And here the same is true. This moment in this setting is not random. That Jesus finds himself in Galilee preaching next to a sea and in turn pushes out to the deep providing a miraculous catch of fish and converts fishermen into disciples who themselves will be fishers of men is really like what we see with Hosea. It's on purpose and it's intended to teach us. All of Jesus' life was symbolic. It was a symbolic recapitulation and fulfillment of what had come before and is evidence of his sovereignty over all things, including the flow of history. Okay, so after Jesus finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And in response, you know, Peter says something very practical. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Then that shows some bit of humility because he's a pro and Jesus clearly is not. And yet... Master, at your word, we will do this. Now, to catch the full significance of this moment, it's, I think, critical to understand that the sea, like Galilee, is often, not always, but is often a symbol for the Gentiles and the nations in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Daniel 7, the four beasts that come out of the sea representing the four empires or nations coming out of the Gentile world are put under the dominion of the Son of Man. So the sea is associated with the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Son of Man, Jesus, will have dominion over them all. In the Old Testament, Israel is often pictured as a people of the land. This is why, among other reasons, their leaders are often shepherds. And the nation itself is often described as God's vineyard. Uh, and the Gentiles are, are, are pictured like the surrounding sea that, that rages against the land. So like with Jonah, who was fleeing the presence of the Lord in the land by way of the raging Gentile sea on a ship among Gentile sailors, so too Israel and the nations were often thought of as the separation of dry land from the sea. So there's lots of examples of this, but I, I, just, I chose uh, Psalm 65 to show you how this works. This is what it says, starting in verse 5. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the 
ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So, the chaotic roaring seas are like the tumult of the raging of the nations. The psalmist puts those things together on purpose. You're supposed to see them as being similar. And there's lots of examples like this in the Old Testament, so I'm not going to belabor this, but the point is this. Jesus is purposely performing this miracle in a way that signifies that the salvation of God was coming through Israel, in fact, through these Jewish fishermen to the nations, which is something that passages like Isaiah 25 looks forward to in fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham because he would be a blessing to the world. So Jesus asked Peter to go out into the deep and at his word to cast out the net for a catch. And like it so often seems to us in, in terms of people we think would never come to faith, to Peter it seems a complete waste of time to throw out his nets when he's been doing it all night with no results. But still, recognizing that Jesus has some kind of authority. I mean, after all, he calls him master. He calls him master because, after all, he had witnessed Jesus uh, heal his mother-in-law with a word in his own home. That was last week. Well, he does what Jesus asks. And, and the response is immediate, and the catch is so large that Peter signaled to a second boat to come help. And even then, both boats began to sink under the weight of the fish. Now, I don't know exactly how big those boats were, but I know for certain they weren't rowboats. And, and I think they were probably bigger than your typical bass boat. And so the amount of weight it took to overcome the buoyancy of the boats must have just been mind-boggling. And Peter's response is virtually the same as Isaiah's when Isaiah was taken into the throne room of God. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So in this moment, Peter, uh, he recognizes that the same God Isaiah witnessed, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the Holy One of Israel, was standing right in front of him on the deck of the boat with fish everywhere. And as Peter is currently constituted, as he currently is, he cannot be in God's presence. So he's recognizing that Jesus is Lord, not just Master, but God. He's recognizing that. And we read in verses 9 through 10 that, that everyone on the boats was rightly astonished. And again, try to picture the scene. They're rightly astonished and included among the fishermen were other future disciples, namely James and John. Jesus, in response to Peter's confession of sin, which is what he does here, offers him an assurance of his pardon and his grace. He says, do not be afraid. Something similar to what he will say to Peter after Peter denied him three times. And in turn, he gives him a commission. From now on, you will be catching men. And after the boats uh, are, are put ashore, they left everything. They left everything to follow Jesus, and rightly so. So what I think we are meant to see in this, this, short, this short little snippet is that the kingdom of God is not merely for the Jews, though it does come through them, 
but for the Gentiles as well. The kingdom of God shows up as the day of Jubilee in the land of Israel. Remember, that was the subject of Jesus' first sermon in his hometown. And it will move out across the sea. Again, think of Jonah to cover the farthest reaches of the earth, and the catch will be enormous. And like with the mustard seed, the kingdom of God will grow from a tiny speck to a great tree that covers the whole world. And whereas in the Old Testament, the primary metaphor for leadership with God's people was a shepherd. So you could think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, and of course, Jesus is the great shepherd. Here, Jesus does something new, and he expands to fishermen. Peter will be both a shepherd, remember, feed my sheep, Peter, do you love me? But also a fisherman, a fisherman. The Jewish people will go into the Gentile nations, something that had already begun with the exile of Israel and Judah hundreds of years earlier, and would fish for Gentiles to bring them into the kingdom. After all, the Jewish people have already been out there. Think about Paul's own ministry. Everywhere he goes outside of Israel, he always finds a synagogue first or some, some gathering of Jewish people. God has always been working towards this. And that's why I think it's appropriate to see Paul in many ways as a new Jonah. Now, of course, throughout the Old Testament, God has always been bringing Gentiles to faith. But with Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God, remember, he's the son of man of Daniel 7, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the nations exiled at the Tower of Babel will be taken back by the kingdom of God. And hell itself, as we saw last week, cannot withstand the onslaught. Martin Luther's reading of this passage is fascinating. He, he sees the future church as a ship in the ocean of Gentiles. And once a ship fills up with fish, more and more churches are planted in order to take in the great, great catch of fish. And you know what? We've all experienced this. We've all experienced this. We, you experienced that in our, in our own town. I mean, this area has not had a small catch of fish, but a large one over hundreds of years, and no one church, no one ship can contain all the fish in this county. So while it's easy to see all the churches in this area as evidence of schisms and fractures among God's people, and of course there is absolutely something to that. There is something to that. We should also see these churches as evidence of God bringing many to faith. And we should rejoice when we see that happening in other churches, even when we have theological disagreements with them. Now, this moment also teaches us something important about what a disciple actually is. A disciple is someone who is fundamentally defined by listening to God's word. In turn, discipleship, you know, the action or really the habit of being a disciple, is founded on God's word. It's bound by God's word, and it never ceases to pursue God's word. And the question, as we, we often point out, is always, which voice, which authority, which word will you listen to? Which one will define you? Which one will be ultimate in your life? Will it be God's or someone else's? That's the question that's, that's posed right from Genesis 3. And notice that the crowds were pressing in on Jesus in order to hear 
the Word of God. That's fascinating. We, we should probably expect them to be for the miracles, but they're pressing in because they want to hear the Word of God. And of course people were attracted to Jesus because of His miracles. I mean, how could they not be? They were incredible, but people were pressing in on Him to hear His Word. So though our attention is rightly attracted to the miraculous catch of fish itself, everything that happened in this, in this moment was a result of Jesus speaking. It was a result of Jesus' word. That's where our attention should, should focus, I think. And so disciples, as a matter of consequence, are hearers of God's word because we are made by his word. This notion of being a disciple is no different than where you see throughout the Bible. You can see it in particular among Deuteronomy 6, for example. You know, those who belong to God are those who hear his word and in turn do it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, your, your soul and with all your might. Jesus repeats that clearly, right? The movement of discipleship then is God speaks. We listen and in turn we respond to his working. We respond to his speech. That's Deuteronomy 6. But if you read through Deuteronomy 4 through 6, just take in the whole, the whole section, Moses says over and over again to listen to God, to meditate on his word, to structure your life by it, to walk in it, and to teach your children to do the same. And so this movement of God speaking, his people listening, and in turn acting on his word is exactly what we see happening here with Peter. He's listened to Jesus on multiple occasions prior to this. And in this moment, he listens to the master's word and he does it. No matter how ridiculous it probably seemed to him. And through this word of God, Peter instantly recognizes that he's face to face with the Holy One of Israel. So if you want to know why I routinely call Christians to keep the Sabbath with Sunday worship centered on word, prayer, and sacrament, and why we continue to offer Sunday school, especially for kids, no matter what the attendance might be, it's because God's people are a people founded on and shaped by God's word. It's why I'm Presbyterian. It's why I'm Presbyterian. It's why at the core of what we do here, it's pretty basic. It's pretty basic. It's worship based on word, prayer, and the sacraments. It's teaching and fellowship that leads to bearing witness to Christ wherever God has placed you. It's why we don't want to reinvent the wheel coming up with countless new programs that meet every supposed felt need. It's why we think how parents raise their children really matters for the future stability of this community and the world at large. It's why we think institutions in our county and our state are worth fighting for and are shaped for the good by faithful Christian people, like what you see again with Daniel. We are like those old school coaches, you know the ones, those old school coaches that think no matter how talented a team is, you never get away from the fundamentals. You never outgrow the basics. And we want to be a church that never gets away from worship and discipleship founded on the word and the sacraments and prayer, the means of grace as they're called given to us by Christ himself, that in turn affects every aspect of our lives. That, that's a Deuteronomy 6 life. There's nothing flashy about it. There's nothing new to it. 
It's fundamental and it's awesome. So to riff off of Fred Sanders, we don't merely go back to the basics of discipleship. We think the way forward is through the basics of discipleship. But notice also how this miraculous catch of, of symbolic Gentiles, really a theological symbol of how God's kingdom will be busting at the, at the seams, again, it comes, it comes through God's word. It comes through God's word. If God created the heavens and the earth through his word, he will redeem all of creation and bring his kingdom to bear through the same word. So like when Jesus says to his disciples in John 4, after the Samaritan woman had come to faith, the fields are white for harvest. So too we see that the nets, the nets are washed and ready for a catch. But apart from God's working through his word, you know, both among half-blooded Israelites in Samaria and, and, and Jews and Gentiles in Galilee, those nets, no matter how clean, will remain empty. They will remain empty. You can work through the night, but unless the Lord acts, we will have nothing to show for it. It's why Paul can say without hesitation in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. So it is through this word that God brings people, both Jew and Gentile alike, to faith. And Paul rightly sees that it is both powerful and exclusive. This is the way God has chosen to act through his word, even as the world, and sadly sometimes Christians, see it as laughable. Consider what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We should never be shocked or dismayed when both the so-called enlightened and wise of our times, but also the highly religious, no matter what religion that might be, find the gospel of Jesus Christ to be laughable or irrelevant. After all, the center of Greek intellectualism in Athens mocked Paul for saying that God would judge the world through the man he had raised from the dead. And yet Paul still said it with utter confidence that it was true and was powerful. It's like what Paul says later in Romans 10. How then 
Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And we, we talked about this in our, in our evening men's study, and it's worth repeating here. What Paul is, is after is that when the gospel is preached, it is not merely a word about Jesus. It is Jesus himself who speaks. The word of God is powerful precisely because the word of God, Jesus the Christ, is the one who speaks and brings life and redemption. So when we take the gathering of God's people lightly, we are taking our Lord lightly. And as a matter of consequence, though we we might say or maybe even think otherwise, in reality, we, we don't think he really speaks at all. Otherwise, like the crowds, we would be pressing in to hear him. In turn, when we, we think the gospel is insufficient or that we need something else, something, I don't know, flashier, more relevant, something that can compete with Hollywood or social media, we have denied the power of the gospel to turn people to faith and in turn, the power of our God to redeem the world. The way forward is the way back. The way forward is the way back. It's intentionally pursuing God through his gifts that he has given to us and continues to work through. His word, prayer, and sacraments together with his people. They're not flashy. Praise God. They're not flashy. They're simple. They're elegant. And they are full of power. And God continues to act through them. Let's go to him in prayer as we come to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the simplicity and the beauty and the elegance of this sharp sword that you have given to us. How it cuts, how it heals, how it works in us. We thank you that you continue to speak. That you have not left us to figure it out. That you continue to heal. That you continue to sanctify. In fact, you continue to save billions of people. We thank you for this grace and this mercy, and we thank you that we can see its power. We pray all of this in our Redeemer's name, Jesus. Amen.